Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you're visiting with us tonight, we especially want to warmly welcome you. Thank you for coming tonight on Easter Sunday, where uh, we, along with Christians around the world, uh, especially, uh, perhaps, uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you have a Bible, or if you want to look at the Pew Bible, we're on page 991. We're actually continuing tonight a part of a study in Timothy, but we've arrived at a text, I think, appropriate for this evening's occasion. Tonight we'll consider the good news from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Let me invite you to hear now the word of our God. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would behold wonderful things in your word. Give us uh, eyes uh, to see Jesus, to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Uh, Grant that by your spirit, you would show us Jesus for both his glory uh, and for our good. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, as uh, we alluded to in our prayer, uh, in an act of very savage evil, nearly 115 people, mostly Christians and college students in Kenya, were murdered. They were executed because they were Christians by a group uh, aligned with Al-Qaeda. They were martyred because they believe in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his promise to bring forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who believe in him. In an open letter to the church uh, worldwide by the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of Kenya, uh, he writes this, just a portion reading tonight. This attack, he says, was calculated, uh, was a calculated manifestation of evil designed to destroy our nation and our faith, but on this Good Friday, we are reminded that the very worst evil can do is not the last word. Through spite and blatant miscarriage of justice, Jesus dies the agonizing death of the cross, but his last words were, it is finished. The cross was not a tragic accident, but the fulfillment of God's purpose to reconcile men and women to himself through the atoning death of his son, a reality gloriously confirmed 
by his resurrection from the dead. And so after calling for the government to intervene for the safety of people, for people worldwide to care for the martyrs, he goes on to say, we will not be afraid as Christians. We need not fear or flee. He says, Jesus' death upon the cross was not in vain. By his death, death has been destroyed. The stone rolled away. And the empty tomb of Jesus assures us that death does not have the last word. Amen, brothers and sisters and friends. That's the truth. Those killers were profoundly wrong. But they are only but a part of what is wrong with this world. I'd venture to guess if I asked any of us, we'd say, yeah, there's something wrong. (laughs) In this world, what would you say it is? The London Times once asked its readers uh, to turn in an essay in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, in a now famous reply, wrote, uh, Dear Sirs, I am, signed, G.K. Chesterton. He has it right, friends. He agrees with the Apostle Paul here in this text before us. When Paul says, I am the problem. Me, not you. If he could look ahead in time, not Al-Qaeda. Me. And I know that's shocking. But there's a solution to this problem, and it is the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we want to think about this from this passage tonight, and I want, I want to highlight two main things. First, what's Paul saying about the good news about Jesus? And then I want us to think about how, if we believe it, does that change us? Does that help us? Does that shape us? So those are the two main things we want to think about. Three points about the gospel and three points of application. First, the gospel. And the first thing I want you to see is that Paul begins with this. Uh, this is a tr- trustworthy statement he says the first thing is this the gospel is trustworthy he's been in this text in this book dealing with false teachers who've been saying all kinds of crazy things uh, dealing with people who, who who believe and teach myths and legends or reliance upon genealogy and ancestry in order to be right with god uh, people who twist Uh, God's law into something it's not meant to be. People, verse 6, who have wandered from the truth into speculations and meaningless talk. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with these false teachers. And Paul says now, but this is a trustworthy statement. This you can stake your life on. It may be true for you, people will say, but, you know, it's not true for me. But Paul would say no. This is a trustworthy statement deserving of all uh, acceptance, full acceptance. Paul is saying, this isn't just for me, Paul. This isn't just for you, Timothy. It's not just for that church at Ephesus who's hearing this for the first time. This is true for all people in every culture at all times. That's the second thing I want you to see, that the gospel is for the whole world. It's trustworthy and it's deserving. The statement is deserving of full acceptance. Now that can mean, you know, you shouldn't knock off a part of the sentence and say, well, only part of that statement is true. But it also might very well mean, and I think it does because of what he says in chapter 2, that it's for all kinds of people in every place and station. That everyone ought to accept this as true. 
There isn't a person here in this room uh, who should think, well, you know, Jesus might save those people, but he won't and he is unwilling to save me. Jesus might be willing to rescue them, but there is no way that he would ever entertain the idea of rescuing me. We should not think that, Paul says. No, we should embrace this as true. Everyone should embrace this as true. Jesus came to save sinners. Are you a sinner? (laughs) He came for people like you. And I want to say to us here in the Western world, that we should never be so foolish as to think because some in the media or some so-called elites in the culture or politics or the university or wherever they are, where people scorn Jesus and his love and mock the very idea of his death and resurrection. We should not think that everyone else does that too. It is not so. In our day, there are hundreds of millions of people in South America and Africa and Asia flocking into the kingdom while Westerners turn their back. And I want to say we are the fools if we do so. God will have people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation surrounding his throne, bowing in adoration before the Lamb of God who was slain to purchase a people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. So this too is for you. If you will but receive and rest on Jesus for your salvation because he came to save sinners. So it's trustworthy. It's, it ought to be embraced by all of us. And the third thing is, of course, it centers around what? It centers around Jesus. Now let me pause here and ask this question though. Why is it we don't all embrace him? Why do people reject him regularly? Why do I find in my own heart this hesitation to believe? Well, in part because we're sinners who don't think we need him, and in part because we don't think we're sinners. And why? Well, let me highlight two reasons. One is this. We're simply fooled about ourselves. And it is so easy to be fooled about so many things. I've told some of you this story before, but did you know that about once a decade, those who mark time for us by use of the atomic clock have to actually add a second to the atomic clock in order to keep things on track for all of us. And they do it on New Year's Eve. While the rest of us are celebrating and partying, and then as it nears midnight, perhaps you're counting it down, and you're thinking to yourself, it's, it's 11 o'clock and 59 minutes and 58 seconds and 11.59 and 59 seconds, and then the, in the very next breath you say, it's midnight, happy new year, and you blow your kazoo and you kiss or hug or whatever it is you do. Didn't mean for that to rhyme. There's a little group of scientists off in a dark corner somewhere, I guess, who are actually once a decade saying, 115958 115959 11, 115960 midnight and you had no idea that that you had so lost track of time do you see how easy it is when you sort of live in something and through something you don't even realize what you're living in and through well Well, you may have blissfully kissed your way or danced your way or slept your way through New Year's Eve, but I guarantee you, you've either been early or late 
and I couldn't figure it out based on the schedule you set a decade ago. But you and I live in such a way that we are often aware, unaware of things, and so it is with sin. The Bible says we live in sin, uh, and oftentimes we simply don't even know it. It's just the experience of life for us. But there's another reason we don't think we're sinners and therefore don't think we need this Savior, and, and that's because we, we have embraced a bad definition of sin. A poor one that the Christian community inculcates uh, in lots of places. Uh, We often think sin is just the really bad stuff people do. And it's the really bad stuff they do knowingly. And we let people off the hook for uh, sins of ignorance. And we let people especially off the hook for failing to do what they ought to do. Um, How Farnsworth... Uh, was a campus minister at Vanderbilt. He was a peer or colleague of mine. He's now a church planter. He had this guy over from his neighborhood. Again, some of you have heard me tell this story, but he was trying to befriend this man and share the gospel with him, his new neighbor. So he was paying him to come over and help with a variety of needs around his old house, plumbing and such. And the guy was this Hell's Angel motorcycle riding, riding, tattooed, foul-mouthed, you know, you name it, kind of rough and tumble, uh, quick-tempered guy. And so Hal's talking to him, and at one point Hal, the minister, mentions how sinful he himself is. And the guy just look, you know, stares at him like deer in the headlights. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like you just, Hal said, you can just see the wheels spinning. The, the minister thinks he's a big sinner, right? And, um, and so, you know, they go on and... and um, and, and then uh, some weeks later, um, this guy's been mulling this over, and Hal has him over, and he's helping him, and, and Hal mentions again that what a bigger, big sinner he himself is. And at this point, the guy just can't take it anymore, and, he's, and he says something I can't say, but he says, you're full of it, right? <laughs> you don't think you're a big sinner. You think I'm a big sinner is what this guy's thinking, right? But Hal responds this way. Well, let me ask you a question. Who is the bigger sinner? A guy who doesn't know or claim to know God, who doesn't uh, know of or claim to have any kind of new life in Jesus, who uses a few choice words, or, or a guy who says he knows and loves God, believes that Jesus died for his sins, that Jesus called him into the ministry to serve that same Jesus and his gospel, and who doesn't really give a rip if you die and go to hell tonight. Who's the bigger sinner? You see Hal's point? We think our sins are these big, hairy monsters that we're keeping secret from people. Now look, those need to be dealt with. Those can make you afraid of everybody. They can make you feel ashamed. They can make you feel like you could never come to God to be forgiven. But you know what we don't think? We don't think it's a travesty of our humanity that we don't wake up every morning and love the Lord our God, our maker and redeemer with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind and that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We think to ourselves, well, yeah, that's not really that big a deal. Do you see this? But if I catch a glimpse of myself as I really am, 
Not just my sins of commission, but my sins of omission. Then Jesus becomes important and precious. And so Paul says the gospel is trustworthy and it's for all the world. And the gospel is about Jesus. It's not about building utopia on earth. It's not about what, what, what we must do for God. It is about what God did for us in his son. He came into the world for what? He came to save, to rescue, to deliver sinners. There is nothing left to be done for that to be yours, but to believe, to receive it. Jesus cried out upon the cross, it is finished. His work was accomplished and he died and he was buried and he was raised and his being raised demonstrates that he has conquered sin and death and the devil on our behalf and he has been raised to the right hand of the Father for our justification so that we could know that we can be forgiven and accepted by God in Christ because that's where Christ is with God. So this is good news, friends. It's not good advice. It's something I simply need to learn and lean upon that Jesus came to redeem me. He lived for me. He obeyed for me. He satisfied God's divine law and justice. He suffered on my behalf. He died for me. He rose from the dead for me to reconcile me to God forever. Count on it, Paul says. Count on him. Where did he come from? It says he came into the world. Well, he came from the heights of glory. The son of God, the second person of the Godhead who lived with the father and the spirit everlastingly in bliss and joy. He enfleshed, he became a man and he walked among us. And the only way that he was different from us is that he was without sin. And he walked among us and though our first parents said no to God and we have all been echoing their voice ever since. He came and he said, here I am, O God, and I have come to do your will. What is it you want me to do? And the father said, I want you to rescue them. And he did it. And so we say, upon a life I have not lived, and upon a death I have not died, but another's life and another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And that's good news, friends. We sang two Charles Wesley hymns tonight. Christ, uh, the, the one about the resurrection we opened with, Christ the Lord is risen today, and also, and can it be. Last week I mentioned uh, Wesley's own coming to faith in Jesus and the freedom and joy it gave him in 1738. You know that two months later, just two months later, he was preaching at Newgate Prison. Now, he was already a minister, but he was finally converted. He was preaching at a prison, and his diary entry from July 12, 1738 reads this, preached at Newgate to the condemned felons and visited one of them in his cell, sick with fever, his words, a poor black that had robbed his master. So a, a, a slave who uh, was caught uh, for thievery. I told him, of one who came down from heaven to save sinners. 
described the sufferings of the Son of God, his sorrows, agony, and death. He listened with all the signs of eager astonishment. The tears trickled down his cheeks while he cried, What? Was it for me? Did God suffer all this for so poor a creature as me? And Can It Be was published a year later. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me? For me who uh, him to death pursued? This is where Wesley got it. Well, a week passed, Wesley left. A week passed uh, and uh, uh, then met him again in this man's last hours of life under the gallows because he was to be executed. He and others who had come to faith over the course of that week, they spent some hours together ministering and meeting together. Says Wesley, we had prayed before that our Lord would show there was a a power superior than the fear of death. They were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace, and triumph, assuredly persuaded Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. None showed any natural terror of death, no fear or crying or tears. I never saw such calm triumph, such incredible indifference to dying. We sang the hymn together by Watts, Isaac Watts, which concludes a guilty, weak, and worthless worm into thy hands I fall. Be thou my life, my righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. And says Wesley, I could do nothing but rejoice. I took leave of each of them in particular, and I left them going to meet their Lord. They were executed, friends. And Wesley says, I was full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness. The hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. That is the hope that can come even to the condemned criminal. Christ is our life. Christ is our joy. Christ is our pardon. Christ is our righteous standing before God. Christ is everlasting life. And happiness, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The gospel is about Jesus and what he does for us. Are you trusting in him? Now, there are three points of application I want to highlight here. Uh, And they come at the end of verse 15, one of them, then verse 16 is a second, verse 17 is a third. Three things as Paul turns to and away from Jesus for a moment in some regard. He turns to talk about himself and then he turns to talk about others and then he turns to talk about God. Three points of application. First, he turns to himself. Christ Jesus, he says, verse 17, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What Paul is saying is that of all the sinners in the world that he knew, I'm the worst. And some people frankly think that Paul is absolutely either being totally unreal or he's being morbid at this point. Uh, Commentators will put it that way. That on the one hand, maybe he's being unreal. This is pious exaggeration, some would say. I mean, uh, you know, because 
in some Christian circles, there's a tendency to um, give uh, uh, to, to spiritually posture yourself in that community. You know, make yourself be a little elevated over other Christians in that community. And if you're part of a community that actually thinks it's okay to acknowledge you're a sinner, you know, then one of the ways you can posture yourself is to say, well, look, guys, you know, I'm the biggest one there is. So Paul's just really, this is hyperbole. He doesn't mean this. He doesn't believe this about himself. And I would simply say to you, that's not true. He isn't posturing. He really believes this. He has thought this language through. Uh, Ten years before he said, I am the least of all the apostles. Five years before he said, I am less than the least of all the saints. Now he says, you line up all all the wicked sinners in the world and you put me the head of that list. That's who I am, Paul says. But then you will say, and others have said it, well, then Paul's being morbid. I mean, this is the problem with Christianity. It makes people hate themselves. Aren't we supposed to love ourselves and have a healthy self-esteem? And how can we think well of ourselves if, you know, in the church, week after week, we hear we're sinners and we need Jesus? How could we leave here, we might think to ourselves, with, with joy? Or happiness, if we keep hearing about our sin. Well, on the one hand, C.S. Lewis had a great response to that. He said, I don't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. That's wine. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, says Lewis, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Because the truth is, it will make you feel uncomfortable at times when you see yourself rightly. But it will also make you glad when you see what Paul says about Jesus. It's both. You've got to have the bad news with the good news. The good news is really sweet with the bad news is really sour. So what Paul is doing here is he's not being unreal and he's not being morbid. He's just being honest. He's saying he's the worst because he was, as he says in the text just before and at verse 16, he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor of Christians, and he was arrogantly and insolently trampling on other people. And all the while he thought to himself that he was doing good And he had this motive that desperately wanted to be zealous for the Lord and to do good. But at the same time, he looked down his nose on and had contempt and he trampled underfoot other people. He was a self-righteous, arrogant zealot. And so Paul says, I have discovered that I am the chief of sinners. Now, let me ask you this. Do you take Paul's view of himself? as your view of yourself. Because I don't think that Paul simply intends us to all line up and say, yeah, Paul, we condemn you too. You know, there's never been anybody as bad as you. I don't think that's all that he means to say here. Rather, that that it is part of a, a maturing Christian view of yourself. Not that you are getting better and better and more glorious and more Christ-like and more loving and well, you just don't know Jesus that much anymore, but rather that you fall short in ways you never thought you did. You sin in ways you didn't know that were sin. And you have begun to say, like Paul, I know me. I know my motives. I know what's really in my heart. I know my loves, my twists. 
I know my iniquity, I know my stench and my foul, and I know all the things I ought to be doing that I continue to fail to do, and I know that there's nobody worse than me. That's what Paul is saying. As Robert Murray McShane says, uh, that the seed of every known sin lies hidden within my breast. And sure, it may not have grown up and expressed itself in the same way that others have, but it's there. I mean, imagine two acorns. One acorn falls into a place where there's no soil, no moisture, and another acorn falls into a place where there's good soil and plenty of food and moisture. One rots where it sits. The other grows into a mighty oak. Which acorn had more vitality? Why the difference? Well, friends, it was the environment. It was the circumstance. They both had the potential. The Bible says, you know, we don't all grow up to be like Hitler or Osama bin Laden or our favorite bad guy. But it is not for a lack of talent. The seed lies hidden within our breast. And notice Paul here about himself saying, uh, of whom I am foremost. This is present tense. He doesn't say, I was the foremost. He says, I am. Paul isn't saying, I really used to be bad. He's saying, I know me now, and I see myself this way. You know the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I've mentioned this recently. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee thanked God that he was not like other men, especially that tax collector over there. And we all tend to be like that Pharisee, right? We look down our noses at the immoral or at the alcoholic or at the drug addicted or at the thief or at the murderer or at the perjurer or at the terrorist. And we say, I'm better than them. But when God shows us the state of our own soul, we bow our head and we beat our breast and we say, God, have mercy upon me, the Sinner. That's the language of that parable. I am the sinner. So there's the first application, friends. If you understand the gospel, it shapes your view of yourself. But it also shapes your view of and actions towards others. Verse 16, notice what Paul says. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see what Paul is saying? He is saying, if Jesus can save someone as terrible as me, Jesus can save someone as terrible as you. (laughs) If he can be patient with someone like me, I know that he can be patient with you. I'm an example for you, Paul is saying. Now, is this patience of Jesus just in the past or is it in the present? It's not in the past only. It's not just that God was patient with me and I was the chief of sinners, but God is patient with me. I am the chief of sinners. God is still being patient with me, Paul's saying. And if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. And if there's hope for me and there's hope for you, there's hope for everybody. There's hope for murderers, the kind of murderers like people in Kenya who did what the Apostle Paul did to Christians. And he was saved. 
There is hope for people like serial killers. David Berkowitz, you know that name, son of the son of Sam killer, also called the Colt 44 killer. He was convicted of killing six women and shooting seven others in New York City over the span of 13 months from 1976 to 77. He's serving six consecutive 25 years to life sentences. But in 1987, he fell on his knees and cried out to Jesus. And he says this, I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. When I got up, it felt as if a very heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. I did not understand what was happening, but in my heart, I just knew that my life somehow was going to be different. Now, it is true that many men have jailhouse conversions that are a bit spurious. But you know that he has been up for parole many, many times, and he is always, though eligible, requested that he not be paroled. He says, I am already free. And he serves in the chapel and in Bible study. There is hope for serial killers. There is hope in the gospel for those who mock Jesus until their very last hour of life upon this earth, but who, like the thief on the cross in the very last moments, stop mocking Jesus, but say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There is hope for rebellious children the sexually immoral, homosexuals, lesbians, fornicators, adulterers. There is hope for thieves and liars. Christ came to save real sinners with real sins. If you have never embraced the Lord Christ at all, be assured of this, that no matter what your sin might be, no matter how wretched it might appear to you, You are savable by the grace of God because it is a trustworthy saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners. So go to him, run to him, flee to him and say, say, take me, Lord, because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. But for some of us, could it be that God has been patient with us all these years? Because he intends to save us and show others how patient he is. Are you telling people about the mercy of God's patience towards you? And let's encourage others, dear Christian friends, by the mercy we have have found. Let us hold ourselves out to others, not as doers of morality and examples they should follow so that they can get it right like us. But let us hold ourselves out to others as needers of mercy who have received it in God's grace. And so then evangelism becomes simply one poor beggar telling other poor beggars where you found bread. 
Now, so Paul turns from looking at himself, I'm the chief of sinners, and he turns from his example for others, and he turns finally, and in the last place, towards God. And he bursts forth in praise and adoration, verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, he says. He cannot think about what a miserable sinner he is, And how gracious and kind Jesus is in saving him without immeasurable joy. And if grace has grabbed you, then the God of grace is your boast. He is your delight. You want to see him revered and exalted. And if your heart doesn't marvel at him, you know too little of his mercy. But that makes you a great candidate to embrace this trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. Let's pray. Our Lord, have mercy on our souls. Jesus, you're a great, kind, loving God and rescuer. Rescue us and Turn our sorrows into joy and turn our fears into relief and wash away the filth of our sin and shame and give us the hope of life with you forever. In your name I pray, amen.